2: ...podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au
6: Solidarity forever!
4: Good morning, folks. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. We've got lots of things for you this morning. In fact, uh, we've got... uh, Marcus is coming in at eight. He's going to be talking to uh, one of the organisers of the uh, Westgate Bridge commemoration, which is on Sunday, a very important event... In working history in uh, Victoria and probably across uh, its uh, Australia, actually, the disaster of the Westgate Bridge falling is a salient uh, thing to remember, uh, that things can go terribly wrong and people should be uh, super aware of safety at work. That's probably the worst it could possibly get. Uh, We're also going to uh, hear from Coral Winter first up. We're going to hear from Coral Winter. Coral Winter was at the Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering last. Weekend. She's just come back from Venezuela and she's got some important words to uh, give to uh, the community about what's going on in Venezuela. Later on, we're going to hear from Bessie Byrne, hopefully, about uh, what's going on at the Environmental Film Festival, uh, Real Impact Industry Day, how to get environmental messages out there using film. They call it video probably is digital, so it doesn't really matter. And uh, later on, we're going to uh, have some uh, some of the words that were spoken at the Peter Norman Day, which uh, was October the 9th. Uh, as you might be aware, that Peter Norman Day is what's been called for, a memorial on uh, the returned city square. And uh, it's uh, it, in order or, uh, to uh, not only commemorate uh, Peter Norman's uh, uh, our work uh, his human rights perspective, which was uh, highlighted on that podium at the October, at the Olympics in 1968 in Mexico, when uh, the two uh, Black Americans stood there, at the 200 meter winner uh, and the bronze medalist stood there with the human rights salute, uh, uh, beamed across the world. And, uh, of course, Peter Norman came second. He got the silver. And a little white boy from from Australia stood there in solidarity because he wasn't a little white boy. He was a human being that called for human rights. And uh, there is a, a groundswell of support for the idea of there being a Port Peter Norman Day and there being memorials. We should be commemorating our heroes, our genuine heroes. Uh, if I've got enough time, I'm going. To, I'm hopefully going to give you a Chrissy Lee, Horsewood, who is a, uh, a war uh, w- warrior of Aboriginal resistance person from Minjin. That's Brisbane uh, branch. Uh, she was at also at the Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering. She was a wonderful speaker, and she had something fantastic to impart about time. Which I thought is, was worth passing on. Anyway, action-packed, big day.
7: For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Saber and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wooden Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's MoshTicks.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter.
2: My name is
4: Coral Winter. And I... you've just come back from Venezuela?
2: Yes, I've just spent three weeks in Venezuela on a delegation, international delegation organised by um, Venezuela Analysis, the organisation that does um, ad- recent articles about new updates on Venezuela from a progressive point of view in English. Okay, can you tell us uh, your experience there? Well, it was very interesting, and um, I was a little bit alarmed. But th- things are working out, you know. With the new Constituent Assembly elected, the Garimbas, which were the um, reactionary group of um, the opposition, burning trees and stopping cars in the streets, um, and killing—they've killed 126 people on both sides in the, in the last three months. That had stopped for the month after for a whole month after the Constituent Assembly had met um, and so that was a very positive um, very positive um, influ- effect um, of the constituent assembly elections but also it is worrying that there is a lot of um, starvation I think the people can't afford the food there's plenty of food but people can't afford it because of the inflation and every day the inflation goes up, uh, one day I paid 2,500 bolivars for an empanada on the Saturday and on the Tuesday, it had gone up to 2,800 bolivars. So that's what's happening. The imperialist campaign and the battle and the war front is really on the economic issues, that they're continuing to increase inflation massively. They've got um, the Colombian government and the Brazilian government have set up exchange, um, money exchange um, places on the border with Venezuela. And every day, they, they are having, taking, carrying out a parallel exchange rate with the Bolivar. And so what that gets posted on the web and called Dollar Today. And um, the, using that exchange rate, um, they put up, keep increasing the inflation of the Bolivar, Venezuelan Bolivar, artificially. So it's been really, really difficult for the, Venezuel- for the Maduro government to control that. And it's uh, become a massive problem.
4: You were actually there when uh, were, the voting was going on, is that correct?
2: No, that happened on July 30th, the voting, and we arrived in August um, 20th and we were there for 10 days where there were eight people from the United States, uh, three people from Belize and uh, one Australian myself. And, um, but that, for that whole month, the whole of August and into September for six weeks, there had been no um, violent confrontations in the streets. Uh,
4: Your purpose. What was your purpose?
2: Well, it was really um, because I've spent a lot of time in Venezuela and I've been going back and forth and we used to hold um, brigades to go to Venezuela when um, Chavez was still alive. Our purpose was really to find out what was happening and what was going
4: on and what the situation was and to report back. Uh, the inflation, the uh, wild levels of inflation, and the economic warfare that's being uh, attacked, that's been uh, played out against the Venezuelan government, the Madura, Madura government. What, what's the Madura government and the People's Assembly trying to do to uh, change that situation?
2: The first thing the Madura government did this, when I was there was they, be, they handed out, they're going to increase what the, the group, the social organisation called CLAP, C L A P and what it is is they hand out a whole parcel of food to every family, but it, well, most importantly poor families, because it's all monitored by the community councils who needs these um, packages of food, uh, to try and alleviate the whole problem of the, the increasing cost of food. In addition to that, they've put a price regulation on 50 items, essential food items, um, so that rice, like rice, pasta, coffee... And other things, and, and uh, yeah, and bread, to stop this massive inflation, they'll be they'll be they'll be monitored by the community councils. But and I don't, but I don't think they have really enough people to be able to do that. They're going to have to take more drastic measures, and I think they're going to try and go off the um, U.S. dollar as the only way of, of confronting this, and maybe use Russian currency or Chinese currency. As a, as a way of um, stopping this massive inflation. Initially, like the, the price of a bolivar was five bolivars for, um, for one US dollar in, um, in um, 2012, 2010, 2011. It's now 20,000 bolivars for one US dollar. So, so
4: this is how the American uh, presence within uh, Venezuela is actually playing itself out, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It's
2: an a- economic war, so people are really, um, so they're trying to turn the Shavista movement um, a section of it against the government in order to overturn it and that's one of their strategies to make them, uh, no, they are hungry, people are hungry, I saw people going through um, garbage um, to, to salvage whatever they could and it is a massive, massive problem the, you know there's plenty of food there, I saw stalls in the market, local market full of food but people can't afford it, the other thing they were trying to do, the opposition, was to um, provoke the Maduro government into retaliation against um, the Garimbas, the, you know, the, the, um, the attacks of resistance in the streets, by f- provoking the government to shooting people, protesters, so that they then could call on the US government to intervene. Um, and to overthrow the government. Well, that didn't work. Maduro has been very calm about it all. He's actually withdrawn the, um, any weapons from the National Guard and the police who are coming out to contract the Garimbas um, so that they, there's no more killings. And so that becomes a bit unfair because these guardsmen and police then put themselves on the, on the line, firing line, and they're going to be shot at because their resistance, the opposition, have guns and weapons, but they won't be able to retaliate except with... Um, gas with... Um, or oh, clubs. Yeah, or gas, yeah, to to stop myself. So, I mean, one guardsman has been jailed because they had a trial because he, a protester was killed, but people have been upset about that because what else can you do when they were initially fired at by the um, opposition?
4: So it's a very t- a tremulous period of history for Venezuela.
2: Yes, they're on a, you can feel they're sort of on a knife edge, you know, um, it can go either way. The Chavista movement tell me my friends there in Katia, who are in a poor working class area, that 70% of the population are with um, Chavismo, but um, because of the 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 problem of the economy and the difficulty of getting anything, just keeping your family alive, you know, that could change, but at the moment the, um, the people in the barrios have not come down from the hills, at least in Caracas, to attack the government, to overturn the government, so... It depends on what happens in the next period. It's very crucial. So we really have to step up our international solidarity and, and to, to support the um, Nicolas Maduro government. Um, it's, it's a lie he's a dictator. It's a lie it's undemocratic. I mean, this constituent assembly, they've elected 520 delegates from around the country um, 300 of them based on uh, the area, and 200 based on um, what sort of pr- profession or you know, grouping, like pensioners or students or youth or um, other groups, to vote, you know, voted for. So it's totally, and this will sit for two years to write a new constitution. And part of it, I think, is they're going to get rid of the mayors and the councils, the local mayors and the council, which is also a source of corruption within the government. I mean, there is corruption there, but it's not as bad as what you read about because there's corruption in the whole of Latin America. I mean, they don't even talk well, about it. Well, there's corruption Macri's here. The corruption here as well. <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise. But they do it in a sort of legalised way, but, you know, you don't find out about it. Yes. So this, so they also think that America won't invade directly, but they'll use the Colombian right-wing government and the new Brazilian massive right-wing reactionary government under Macri think it is uh to perhaps invade or invade Venezuela that's a, that's the danger and that's the struggle thanks very much thanks
1: hi I'm Aaron and you're listening to 3CR
2: come to
0: the union activism and history conference featuring a first-hand account of BLF green bands farm worker organizing with the National Union of Workers, rebel women, a secret history of Trades Hall, campaigning for a union yes and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag Newspaper. Saturday, October the 14th at Trades Hall, Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Power in the state government wants to give property developers access to valuable inner-city land that is currently used for public housing. It has announced a large-scale renewal program that will involve the forced removal of tenants and the demolition of nine housing estates across Melbourne.
8: Thousands of new homes will be built on the estates, but the vast majority of these will be privately owned. The developers stand to make big profits by cashing in on land that should be
0: used for public housing. There are nearly 35,000 Victorians on the public housing wait list, and there is a housing affordability crisis across most of the state. The need for thousands of new public housing homes is critical. Instead, the government wants to let developers in to build thousands of unaffordable private apartments.
8: Join a community rally to celebrate and defend public housing this Sunday, October the 15th, 1pm at Debdy's Park, Man Alexander Road, Flemington.
0: There'll be speakers, music, kids' activities and a barbecue organised by the Public Housing Defence Network, a
4: 3CR supporter. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Bessie Byrne in the studio. G'day Bessie, how are you?
3: Good morning, good thanks.
4: Yes, it's wonderful to have a live guest. (laughs) Uh, Real Impact Industry Day, that's today, isn't it?
3: It is, today's the day.
4: Yes, (laughs) it's part of the Environmental Film Festival that has been running over the week and uh, I'll get you to explain the purpose of the Real Impact Industry Day.
3: (laughs) Sure. So yeah, this is the 8th Environmental Film Festival and we're at ACME uh, until next Tuesday um, and as part of that this year the team have been really supportive and um, we've put on a full day of kind of industry related activities. Um, so starting at 11.30 we have um, uh, yeah one session starting which is a kind of in conversation and then the day kind of builds from there.
4: The, the whole purpose of this is to actually increase uh, not only network people who are actually making Uh, films to promote the issues of environment but it's to actually improve people's mm. skills at getting those messages across, right?
3: Yeah. So last year we ran a kind of trial inaugural forum that was kind of designed at getting everyone together to work out kind of what needed to be focused on to be able to make more high quality, uh, especially Australian and especially feature productions. Um, as an EFA programmer for the last few years, uh, sorry, F is the Environmental Film Festival of Australia. It's not a swear word. <laughs> um, we... I have a quota to have at least 30% Australian content and we would love to be able to increase that quota but it's hard to kind of even make that 30% often. Not enough Um, films
4: being made. Yeah, not enough films being made. And surprisingly, there's so much
3: environmental
4: degradation (laughs) in
3: Australia. (laughs) Too many stories to be told. Um, And there are a lot of people kind of working on things like really passionate environmental storytellers that I feel just need a little bit of extra support to be able to turn their kind of personal project or passion project Project or um, projects they're doing with a charity into something that can have a much wider impact. So we're kind of trying to work with um, people who already do kind of communications or videos for environmental organisations like the big ones, a lot of our filmmakers that do get films into the Enviro Film Festival program have worked with organisations like uh, the Wilderness Society over the years, you know, studying communications and then finding a really interesting character and building on that or um, just, you know, finding a passion for using video in longer form. So people, there is a strong relationship back and forth between the environmental sector and... um, and our filmmakers.
4: So so linking is a key. Yeah, linking is key.
3: And then last year, one of the things we were trying to build on is um, also connecting philanthropists into that space. So one of the big issues with film funding is that often people are kind of only happy to put money down once somebody else has said that they will put money down. So it's like this kind of advertising works. Yeah, political playing field no one will commit until somebody else is committed. And so it's this idea that if you can get an, a big environmental NGO to back your documentary, then a philanthropist is going to feel more confident kind of putting their money down as well and you know all these complicated things. Does that
4: does that have an effect on what actually gets made then?
3: Um, Look, I don't know if I know the answer to that. But um, I think, you know, filmmakers do need money. And at the end of the day, you know, there's loads of passionate filmmakers out there who, you know, spend years working on things and put their hearts and souls into them. But without kind of support and distribution and, you know, a bit of finance and, you know, these sorts of things, you know, they don't have the impact that they could have. So it does really help when you have you know, bigger players kind of investing in. I
4: mean, that's the whole purpose of the environmental film festival, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that started. Uh, it, did you say it's the eighth year? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so it started in order to improve the the knowledge of the community around environmental issues.
3: Yeah, exactly. So it was started by Nick Abel, who um, just did it because he felt like you know, all these films were happening and people don't really get to see them um, as often as they should. And especially like all over the world, there's amazing, incredible stories being made. And unfortunately, most people just kind of only have access to mainstream media or you know really big production so it's lovely to have little festivals like ours that kind of bring you interesting films from around the world and yeah Nick started that just with a group of friends and it's kind of grown and grown and grown over the years. Well
4: you know the 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 issue of course of our time is the environment and it's incredible Mm. how it's like the elephant in the room it's always put aside Uh, but a lot of these I mean what comes to mind it's not uh, part of your program But the film Blue That's on at the moment Yeah is, is that, that had the same uh, impulse Which was to uh, get, it, get out there and make sure that people not only are armed with the information but that they can become echo warriors themselves.
3: Yeah, yeah. So that film's fantastic and we did really want it in the festival but um, the Melbourne International Film Festival is kind Snapped of up. a bit fussy about not letting other people screen the films that they're screening. So um, we missed out but we do have Sarah Beard. Um, she's kind of the impact producer mainly for that at the moment. So she's coming to the industry day today to kind of, yeah, talk about Blue, how she got involved and why it is really important um, to kind of be making these documentaries. And then the second part of that is the impact they have. So um, Blue's got all of these. They've partnered with Cool Australia to make all these school resources and um, they've got this huge list of ways that people can get involved and kind of take action because, I don't know, one of the things at the film festival that – um, the The team often feels is like we throw this kind of, um, kind of stressful, sometimes quite depressing information at people with these films, and then um, they kind of leave the cinema going, oh right now. Blah, what? Blah, blah, so, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, so we're really determined to connect people with action, and um, it's great to see films like Blue, kind of yeah, going that one step further and saying like, um, here's the information, but also here's how you can, you know, get involved, become an eco warrior, and. Yeah, make a bit of a difference, hopefully.
4: Now, the industry day, let's go through that. Uh, you've just touched on it. Uh, there are five sessions, is it? Or
3: Yeah, five sessions. Um, so well, it
4: costs $65. So if you're a true devotee, that's how much it will cost for the day. But there's lots, you get a big bang for the buck. But yeah. each session is $18. So explain yeah. what it is that you're actually giving to the audience
3: yeah so the first session is an in conversation with Mila Ung Thwin, who's an incredible director who we've actually um, flown out all the way from Canada with help from the Canadian Film Fund um, and he's going to be talking us through kind of his work over the years and how he has um, developed such a successful robust career as a kind of environmental filmmaker and documentary maker and his latest film which is uh, it actually played last night um and has one more screening let there be light is about nuclear fusion which is something you know Ooh, that's a big issue at the moment. yeah <laughs> i don't know if we can... Oh, that nice clean energy yeah. source. <laughs> not yeah i don't know the um <laughs> i kind of watched the film and just thought wow the, the world's a lot more complicated than i have time to get my head around but um well, yeah. that's
4: why you've got a filmmaker who makes a film like yeah, that.
3: Yeah, exactly. It gives us the, the overview of what's going on and it kind of makes it look like it's, it's possible that we could have um, nuclear fusion reactors. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's kind of the idea of you're basically building a little sun on Earth that just continues to generate energy, but instead of separating nuclear particles, you're um, fusing them. So.
4: No. And the idea is that uh, certain money people think that this is the great answer, but they've got no answer to what you do with the waste.
3: Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I find it all very. Confusing. It's it's
4: all very, um, uh, maybe seductive for some people, but yeah. yeah, continue.
3: Yeah, it seems to be kind of still in the world of well, I scientists.
4: can just got the Nobel Prize prize. Perhaps oh. they can use it as a paddle to uh, make people aware that uh, nuclear arms should be something of the past, Mm -hmm. but continue.
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, Yeah, and so we're going to be quizzing him about that film and, um, yeah, how he got involved, why he made it and, you know, a bit about his And how he made it. How he made it, yeah. And um, the second session is more of kind of a how to become an environmental filmmaker. Uh, We've got a panel of um, kind of emerging slash established environmental filmmakers who are all working in the industry and have produced uh, short films or I think they've all produced feature films um, or kind of constantly doing work in this space. So we'll get to hear from them about the challenges, how they look after themselves um, and, you know, keep keep the money coming in. and um, Keep yeah. the stories out there. Keep the stories out there, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, then it
4: moves on to a variety of other things. So you uh, talk about... Uh, a generating awareness and the impact as well mm-hmm. that's what you were talking about before uh, so it's not just something that's a done deal it's not just a personal pursuit making environmental films is it mm. it's actually uh part of being an eco warrior yourself
3: yeah and half the work starts when the film's finished these days <laughs> competitive world um how do people get tickets Yeah, so you can go to our website uh, www.effa.org.au. effa org au, and then if you want to be cheeky, you can go straight to www.effa.org.au slash real impact. That's real, spelled R E E L. Yeah,
4: and where is it at? It's at Acme.
3: Yeah, today it's at Acme. Um, Starts at eleven. Starts at eleven. First session's at eleven thirty, and then at five thirty. we're having a little networking event to kind of wrap up and if anyone wants to um, get a ticket to any of the sessions they're invited to that networking event where you can kind of you know mingle with the panelists and ask a few more questions and uh, you can
4: buy the ticket on the day uh, you can yep thanks for coming com- down thanks for coming in and uh, talking to us
9: Woman, beggars in the home, with my fingers to the boat. Woman, beggars in the home. Woman, beggars live alone on the streets or in the home. Leave yeah. I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. ten,
4: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And who have we got in the studio? I've got Marcus. How are you?
10: Yeah, good, thanks, Annie. Good to be back.
4: Yeah. And uh, you've got something very important to discuss with uh, Pat Preston.
10: Yeah, we do. Uh, tomorrow marks 47 years to the day since Australia's worst industrial accident Accident a day. 35. Young men went to work yet never arrived home. October 15, 1970, the day a span of Melbourne's Westgate Bridge, which was under construction at the time, collapsed. And this morning, uh, Pat Preston, who's a surviving Westgate uh, construction worker and now on the Westgate Bridge Memorial Committee, joins me on the line. Welcome to the program, Pat. Uh, good
1: morning, Marcus.
10: And Pat so this this time 47 years ago uh, you were a construction worker on the Westgate project um what are your memories what do you recall about that tragic day
1: Oh it was a, it was a Thursday uh, Marcus um back uh, a payday um just you know went to work just like uh, any other day didn't seem anything unusual about the day other than a bit of a chill in the in, in the air um I was a crane operator uh, and uh, just getting on towards dinner time it was uh, um, customary when I uh, uh, on a small light mobile crane um, when I was uh, 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 near the steel spans to, to uh, drive down there and pick up a couple of the, the guys and run them up to the spotty hotel was, uh, things were different in those days on construction Um I uh, parked my crane just uh, almost up, uh, alongside the the steel spans, which had been had been put up, and uh, looked up on the lift up, uh, seen um, uh, my mate Paddy hannaby one of the riggers, uh, and a couple of others, and uh, engineer Miller looking down uh, from the lift platform, um, uh, and uh, suddenly there's this. Uh, very loud. Um, well, it's hard to explain the noise. It was like a cracking and uh, <laughs> banging up above me, and um, looking up, uh, see the, uh, uh, the the bridge seemed to be moving. And then I realised what was happening. It started buckling and coming down, and I sort of got myself behind uh, the the rear wheels on the crane there, thinking, "Oh, shit, better get away from this. Uh, whilst I was looking, uh, um, one of the guys who was on uh, the walkway to the platform came flying down, uh, just uh, uh, past me. That was where, um, a young carpenter, uh, apprentice carpenter, who had sort of landed in the swamp. Um, from there, uh, well, you know, as you can imagine, it was a shock and. Uh, uh, everything sort of went very quiet for a little while, you know, well, maybe only a second or two, it would seem like that, everything going quiet, and then, and then uproar, you know, bangs and noise, and, uh, and, uh, that's, uh, once you sort of get over the shock, it's in to see, uh, what you can do.
10: And had the workers uh, sensed there was something wrong on the project in the days prior? Uh,
1: Most certainly, look, it was only a couple of months before uh, when we had a mass meeting because we'd heard of the Milford Haven Bridge collapsing in the UK. Uh, And, uh, you know, we had meetings, discussions about it, and we ended up with engineers coming and telling us how safe the job was we were working on and how it was a, a belts and braces type Technique and we had nothing to worry about. Um, On the uh, just a a couple of uh, well, just a a week or so before uh, the collapse on a Sunday, I was on a job and finish. Uh, We used to have that sort of thing in those days on construction. On the crane, helping um, to de rig uh, a crane just. Alongside uh, the steel span, so we have a 1200 line crane, along with uh, a couple of the riggers who unfortunately came down on in the, in the bridge, uh, and uh, uh, one of the foremen who had gone up to take some visitors onto the top, um, and uh, when he came down was talking to him down by the lift, uh, and he mentioned our the steel was very hot and a bit of a bluey colour on it. Um, at the time, didn't think anything of it, but uh, uh, there'd been a number of meetings over the safety of the bridge. So, you know, we, were, we put sort of trust in engineers, which uh, now I've learned, you, know, you just don't trust no bastards.
10: And um, how would you describe safety on the job in those days? I mean, today we have the consultation rights, the oh Act, Safety committees existed uh, look, on work sites that was non existent in those days i was... uh, look,
1: it wasn't look uh, we uh, uh, safety was ourselves if we thought it was wrong it was wrong and uh, uh, we you know we blewed about it, uh, it was all, we had stop work uh, meetings and uh, discussed and uh, the issues and uh, but if there if there was not safety as we know it now look uh, what we uh, enjoy on construction now, I guess you could say, had a, uh, had a, uh, a beginning uh, on what came out of the Westgate Bridge. I mean, we all learned lessons there, uh, this is the, us, uh, the workers. Uh, we learned that, that uh, uh, not just to, to trust on face value, what, uh, uh, what bosses and engineers tell us, so we're, we're, we'll dig in and learn ourselves.
10: And you said it was a Thursday payday. You were planning to catch up with your mates for a drink. Obviously, almost oh, certainly we were going never... to go down
1: the road and have a beer at night time. Um, Ten to twelve on that day, everything changed. Um, and uh, when you look at uh, what happened, uh, it wasn't. Uh, uh, it was a fault of uh, engineers and uh, and bosses. And uh, you know, you look at the outcome of the Royal Commission. Uh, and what was said in the, commission? uh well, it said the disaster which occurred and the tragedy of the 35 deaths was utter- utterly unnecessary. And it was utterly unnecessary. In fact, we said, it, uh, you know, what, what should have been allowed, uh, what uh, was allowed to happen was inexcusable. Um, and it was. If uh, we uh, had have had uh, the, the safety... Uh, which we fought for the acts and the legislation which came out there afterwards uh, maybe it wouldn't have happened but um, there again you don't you really don't know because uh, you still see those uh, terrible uh, accidents uh, um, on on construction uh, even now collapses of various things but if you have a look at what happened um, we followed our uh, directions so or the the Guys on top followed the directions. Uh, when the spans were lifted, the two uh, the two steel spans, the um, the camber of uh, one didn't match the other. There was about four inches of um, difference, um, and um, they had uh, the engineers come up with the bright idea of uh, uh, lifting um, eight ton concrete uh, blocks. Uh, up to, uh, to bring, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, bring them level. Uh, those concrete blocks happened to be on the job because they be in, they'd been used uh, uh, as um, uh, guide uh, blocks for, uh, in other parts of the job.
10: OK, and, and they, what's not... It? Sorry?
1: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
10: Yeah, and what's not widely known was the uh, company's shameful treatment of the surviving workers in the days following the tragedy
1: oh look the, uh there was uh, you know no follow up uh, counseling and uh, uh and uh, help financial help and things of that 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 we uh, enjoy uh, today and what we enjoy today we fought for uh the, you know, your your loved one's dead uh it was the uh, the workers uh, on the job, who was left, and other building workers who were collected to assist them financially, um, and compensation—well, um, compensation was almost non-existent. Um, what you what you got was a pittance, and uh, and you waited a long while for it. Um, in fact, uh, uh, there was uh, uh, debates in Parliament, and workers turned up in the gallery there to see that. Uh, uh, we did. There was was a proper compensation um, scheme coming out of it.
10: And uh, Pat, you went on to head the safety unit at the CFMEU. No, that uh, your commitment to safety was inspired out of this catastrophe.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Look, I, 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 I guess you could say I learned lessons uh, then. I was only a youngster, and uh, you know, it's uh, forty-seven years ago now, but. Uh, You learn lessons and uh, I got, I uh, had a big interest in safety when we returned uh, to the job. uh, um, Once it restarted again, um, we formed a safety committee on the job. Uh, uh, There was advisors from the National Safety Council, although I must say some of their advice is a lot to, uh, uh, when you think about what we know now, a lot to be uh, desired. Um, but yes, i got an interest in safety and, uh, I might say it wasn't only the 33 who died on, on that day and the two who subsequently died in hospital, but there was also another fatality a year after we started back and, uh, we were a worker, uh, ended up falling off the force work or, or being knocked off the force work on the east side of the river. So it's claimed, uh, it's claimed many lives. Uh, And many lives of people who uh, suffered as a consequence of the of the collapse, uh, who who died early in their thirties, and uh, and, um, the materials we used, people have lost their lives uh, due to the job, uh, such as asbestos uh, uh, being used widely um, to protect, supposedly to protect us, such as asbestos gloves, gaiters. Uh, Apens for the boiler makers, um, lead and chromium used for the coating of the steel boxes. So there was a lot learnt uh, from the Westgate.
10: Okay, and tomorrow, as with as with each anniversary, uh, the commemoration service uh, will take place. Uh, we'd like to give listeners the details, Pat.
1: Yes, uh, look, every year, uh, uh, survivors, their families, and other uh, uh, workers. Uh, gave it down at uh, the memorial, which I might say was um, uh, paid for by by the workers who um, subsequently finished the job um, and uh, erected by them. Uh, we gave uh, around about uh, twenty to twelve uh, for uh, for our, um, our, our minute sil- two minute silence at ten to twelve, and then. Um, Follow from that, we just go. We go down the road for a drink in the local pub. Um, On this particular uh, year, the uh, CFMU training unit have uh, uh, put together a um, a a, uh, or opening a uh, uh, photographic and and memorabilia memorial at their training unit over in Port Melbourne. So there's. uh, quite a number will be going across there for the opening there as well.
10: OK, and it is important we remember those the lives of those young men lost in those days and to implement safety on the job today. So, Oh, look,
1: uh, uh, 35 who died and others who died afterwards uh, and those who uh, subsequently finished the job uh, fought very hard to, uh, uh, to, uh, to improve safety on construction. We hardly had anything then. Now we do have uh, legislation and uh, acts to uh, we can use. Um, but unfortunately, in my view, and I'm, I'm long uh, retired now from the industry, but looking from you know, outside it, looking in, uh, it seems that some of what we fought for is uh, now being uh, watered down. Um, by the powers of government uh, in some areas and that is very disappointing and it's a a disgrace for those workers who who fought so hard.
10: It is and the fight goes on and we owe it to keep up the fight for those, the blokes who lost their lives. um, Thanks for joining us this morning, Pat, to talk about the Westgate Bridge collapse and the tragedy.
1: My pleasure, Marcus.
5: should I
4: Great Mark Seymour song commemorating a tragic day of the uh, Westgate Bridge collapse in 1970. And uh, you tell us where where is it at this mem- comm- commemoration?
10: Ah, uh, yeah, this year's Westgate Memorial Service will take place tomorrow, Sunday, October 15, at 11:30 a.m. and the Westgate the Westgate Memorial Park, that's Douglas Parade, Spotswood, 11:30 a.m. with a at 11.50, 10 to 12, there'll be a two-minute silence to remember those 35 workers that were killed on the collapse that day.
4: Thanks very much, Marcus. Great report.
10: Thanks, Annie.
11: 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on Same-Sex Marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families.
3: Our community
7: may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas.
11: At this particular time in our political climate, We need to ensure that our members, friends, and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community.
4: We're so lucky on Solidarity Breakfast to have Kevin live today. How hello, Kevin.
12: Morning Annie, how are you? It's just um thinking during that, um any anyone of my generation who was around, uh, I think remembers exactly what they were doing that day and uh, oh, it's just I was out deafen, on a eh? job with a journo. well I was out on a job as a journo with a photographer and uh, he got a call uh this is working for Murdoch at the time, called to get to the Westgate Bridge. There'd been a catastrophe and um and he took off, and it's like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah.
10: okay.
4: Terrible.
12: Uh, just, just on that, of course. Just as a reflection, and today, on today's laws, if the workers took action about that safety problem, they'd get fined millions. That's right. But after it happened, the boss would get slapped on the wrist. So That's it's, right. The laws are good, aren't they?
4: Yeah.
12: Uh Let's get going. A weak solidarity bricky team listener, when the government finally listened to its energy policy expert, former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, and abandoned a clean energy target, because it doesn't need a clean energy target, because clean energy is hurting dirty energy. And so what we need and now have is a new environmentally responsible dirty energy target to be known as DET, debt. But the Minister for Fossils and caving into tiny Josh Friedem Icebergs assured us the debt won't have to be paid by the dirty energy boardroom men in suits, oh, and the few women in suits. So who will pay the debt, Josh? Well, technically, today's younger generation, but again, the dirty energy boardroom men in suits and the few women in suits assure us, by the time the younger generations have to meet the debt, science will have found a solution. It always does, they tell us. And indeed, they hope to provide that scientific solution for an appropriate return, of course. So you believe in science. The science is clearly inconclusive. Tiny exuded logic during a speech to the Flat Earth Society, pointing out the science was not only clearly inconclusive, but had been proven to be false. Climate change is crap. Climate change is crap. But but Tiny, when you were big supremo, you changed your mind. You said you believed in anthropogenic climate change. Did, did you lie to us all? I object to that slur. Object to that slur. I simply said something I didn't believe. Said something I didn't believe. So, Tiny told the Flat Earth Society there is no such thing as climate change and here's where the logic ran riot. And climate change could be a good thing. Old people won't freeze to death. Old people won't freeze to death. That's the climate change that isn't climate change that's crap. The same Good climate change, good crap, that isn't climate change crap, that isn't climate change. And if we reckon Tiny's logic is impeccable, his biggest supporter, the Lord Rupert of Whopping usual suspect columnist, said the fact that all these people attacked Tiny proved what Tiny said was correct. Because in attacking him, they exposed that they couldn't rebut his arguments. And no, listener, I've got no idea either, but we are dealing with tiny and bolt through the head. Although personally, I find this encouraging because if people are taking my views, proves my views are correct, I've never been wrong in my life. Then again, I don't need Lord Rupert's logic-run riot columnist to know that. On logic and common sense, both were right up front as the federal court ruled, slashing wages is the law. The fact that there were negative impacts on the living standards and needs of the low paid did not prevail. Their honours, who thankfully faced no risk of a cut to their own substantial salaries, judged. There were other considerations, like looking after the interests of caring employers. Obviously if we transfer wealth from the low paid to the filthy rich that wealth will trickle down to the low paid providing a sensible win-win solution using noonas <laughs> be laughed because they are great wits the word wealth very loosely when it comes to the low paid <laughs> Note lower than low-paid workers are not proper people like their honours and the caring employers whose interests they upheld, but a general blob, the low-paid. Sadly, the evil unions are still so complaining they are now contemplating taking the matter to the High Court, where their honours are odds-on to have the interests of the low-paid at heart, front and centre. Shopping the workers' union boss, a good union boss, Gerard DeWire, our members so poor, said the decision was devastating for those members. In terms of devastation for our members, it's right up there with the deals we strike with their caring employers. And the caring employers through the Chamber of Profits said it was time the evil unions and the Shopping the Workers' Good Union accepted the umpire's decision. Hmm... Their spokesperson, James Peon your Sons, obviously not a Collingwood supporter, accepted the umpire's decision and stopped their campaign of disinformation. Uh, disinformation? They're misinforming people that slashing wages for the low paid will hurt the low paid. Would we have fought and lobbied and cried poor for years to slash wages if we thought for one moment it would hurt our workers whom we so care about? Yeah, good point, but one argument I can't quite grasp, revealing yet again my lack of comprehension of the greatest little economic order of them all. See, what the evil unions don't comprehend, son explained, was caring employers could now open longer or open at all and employ more of the low-paid. But here's my dilemma. The slashing of wages is because the caring employers couldn't afford to employ the low paid at the high, high, low pay they were receiving. So, if slashing wages means they can a little more easily afford to pay them, where will the money come from to employ more low paid or open longer? Then they'll be paying even more than they paid pre wage slashing. There must be a simple answer. Back in the High Court, their honours were hearing pleas for leniency by all these aliens who have stuck into our Parliament, presumably begging not to be sent to Manus or Nauru or Christmas Island or some other holiday resort at government expense, with Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle's legal team pointing out he is ignorant. And if that is a reasonable defence, Barnacle is a walk-up start. Let's hope no one is so ungracious to point out that when it was just two Greens resigning, Malcolm and Barnacle put their immutable legal opinion that ignorance was no defence. They had no choice but to resign. But there must have been a change of law. Because within days, ignorance became the defence and they had no choice but not to resign mentioned last week the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review Annual Power Edition, devoting so much more to the puppets than the puppeteers. Malcolm, the most powerful person in the country, for instance. Come on, convince Tiny of that. In fact, convince anybody. How they'll wish we'd swallowed that one. Yet the real power wasn't addressed until page 87, where the corporate puppeteers were listed. Well, Wednesday night, the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax board held a celebratory dinner at one of Sydney's most exclusive restaurants for a list of power celebrities, the cream of the corporate puppeteers and self-important hangers-on people like former socialist Hermes Grace's Majesty's Land Supremo and a blight on workers, who was now an apologist for the big four banks and if any group needed an apologist. But I reckon they earned every mouthful of the ultra-expensive fare, every sniff and tossing around the palate of every drop of the ridiculously expensive fine wines and spirits and the cures. Because the guest speaker was the number six most powerful. Yes, Minister for Concentration Camps, Raise a Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer himself. I'm prepared to bet that wasn't mentioned on the invitation or no one would have turned up. When they did learn their fate, I'm also prepared to bet the drink bill went through the roof. The current Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Socialist Supremo Anastasia for Foradani maintained Anna's class solidarity over that Glen Rotten to the core Oakey North mine lockout since July. We mentioned how the courts had sensibly upheld rules made by Glen Rotten to her that locked out workers couldn't say nasty things to or hold nasty signs about their caring employer and scabs. Uh, Sorry, good workers who just want to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. Well, Anastasia joined the battle this week. A socialist big supremo ordering the company to negotiate seriously rather than lock its workers out, I hear you say. Not quite. She attacked the evil union and locked out workers for abusing management and good workers for using cruel terms like scab. The company would doubtless make a rule the locked-out must pat the scabs on the back, escort them in and thank them, which their courts will uphold. Their courts? Sorry, the totally neutral courts. Finally, Malcolm the Powerful and the team found the ideal way to utilise the millions it saved in the budget, slashing public service numbers. It appointed the ubiquitous service provider Sir Count the Profits, which so devotedly manages our concentration camps, to run the call centre for settling bludgers, the thugs and screws bringing the same compassion, empathy and knowledge to the penurious. It's win-win. If the bludgers ring and complain, we send the government the bill. Then we banish the bludgers to Nauru or one of our island holiday camps for which we send the government the bill. And then that person will be taken off the settling books for which we send the government the bill. Well, really, it's win, 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 isn't it? And then if they get ill, thanks to our care, we treat them with a painkiller, aspirin or something, and send the government the bill. And if that leads to suicide or natural, unnatural death, we send the government the bill. And then we also sue the government for failing in its duty of care. Uh, but, but, but they're in your care. All they did was ring up to ask why their payment hadn't arrived. Now they're dead. Care on behalf of the government because we're so efficient at what we do, uh, which is uh, sending the government the bill. It's win, 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 win. Well, that'll teach people for bludging on welfare. Good morning.
1: Hi, I'm Aaron and you're listening to 3CR.
4: Yes, you are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and as promised, we've got uh, a, a Peter Norman Day. Where it was celebrated on October the 9th outside the uh, Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, the call is for a memorial, permanent memorial for Peter Norman uh, on the, uh, on the uh, City Square site when it comes back to public use, uh, of course. Peter Norman is the uh, silver medalist for uh, two hundred metres at the 68, 1968 Mexico Olympics, and it was on that podium, to the the winner, the gold medalist, and the bronze medalist, both uh, African Americans, uh, uh, stood there barefooted. Uh, to in solidarity with the poor, and uh, did the human rights salute, uh, and uh, Peter Norman stood there in solidarity with them on that day, and uh, it's his human rights action that is being commemorated. Now there was quite a a, a bigger gathering than uh, last year around. Uh, Uh, this issue on October the 9th outside Melbourne Town Hall. I'm only going to play uh, an excerpt of uh, the day. Uh, Over the summer period, we're going to hear more of the speakers. Uh, So uh, tune in during the summer period. There are a lot of speakers that aren't uh, here. Uh, Father Bob came out, Ezekiel Ox, Liz Thomas, uh, Sue Bolton, and poet Benjamin Saunders, poet IQ, were as but uh, some of the other people are represented in this uh, um, this piece that I've put together. But as I said, we're going to uh, have more of it over the summer period.
5: <laughs> Today's October 9th is way. The USTFA decreed it to be so. It's not just what he did on the track, but how he never turned his back. So settle in. Sit back. It's a story you should know. Well, there's,
7: there's there's a bit of a confusion whether the salute was a black power salute or a human rights salute. The actual protest was the it was the Olympic project for human rights, and we had used the term black power salute, but we've been contacted by a number of people who told us that it was a human rights. Salute. It was much more inclusive. So, at the last committee meeting uh, last week, we changed the lit- our literature from black power salute to human
6: rights salute. And and you wrote a biography. biography on Peter. Yes. yes. And what's your name? A Damien Johnston. Yeah. Okay. And it's so so called a race to remember. I can so show you a copy in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So
4: why why did you think that it was uh, important to write?
6: Uh, well. Um, I, I grew up in the bush. Sorry, grew up in the bush up in Heathcote and um, I used to write to a lot of singers and athletes and what have you. And I wrote to Peter before the Olympics, wishing him all the very best. And and um, much to my surprise, uh, he was going up to Bendigo to speak at a, at a youth um, uh, Christian group. Um, and he and his first wife, Ruth, they called into Heathcote, um, to Heathcote to meet me and my family. Uh, and I can show you a photo if you want to prove that it was me. What a nice fellow. Yeah, a very nice fellow, yeah. Now, he's a wonderful person, yeah. yeah.
4: And so you decided after all this controversy that it was
6: important to actually bear witness to his character? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, look, Peter wasn't perfect, but who is perfect? But, I mean, the stance that he took over in Mexico City to support the two African-American athletes was incredible because because those two African-Americans, you know, there, there was talk that there were people wanting to assassinate them on the dais and so if they were going to assassinate those two guys, then Peter could very well have been hit uh, by a bullet so it took a lot of guts to do that, um, but Peter, Peter believed in human rights because he grew up in a Salvation Army family, a very strong Salvation Army family who believed in Human rights for everybody, whether they be black, pink, red, yellow, white, uh, it didn't make any difference. Uh, and I admired that. Uh, that takes a lot of courage to to get out there and speak and, and voice your opinions on those sorts of issues,
13: even now. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no Thank you, no
6: worries. My name's
13: Darren Hillsley, and uh, I came down here a few years ago, and um, I think even at my late 30s i was probably the youngest person here <laughs> so um yeah i just really wanted to help sort of bring a, a younger generation uh or the awareness to some, uh, a younger generation and, and um yeah so i run a facebook page for the peter norman day and i've just sort of collated all the a lot of media interviews and television segments from all around the world that um sort of go, you know, yes, check this story out, you know, and they find it fascinating. And so I just keep posting all these stories and just keep saying, you know, it's not from Australia, you know, this is from Italy and this is from America. And,
4: and do you get responses?
13: Yeah, yeah, I get, um, like journalists from Holland and so many people all over the world seem to be interested in it. Um, but then also... Do you
4: find it interesting that in Australia they're not that interesting? That's
13: fine, yeah, I'm just, I just want to like at least, at the very least, keep Posting all these articles from around the world, so at least Australia can keep digging themselves into a hole and you know just going. Um, surely we better do something. And um, but on the other side, I get like parents from from Sydney who whose daughter has um, chosen um, Peter Norman as a year, grade five school project, and and you know guys from out in the suburbs with tattoos of um, Peter Norman and. Uh, a guy who's written a song so yeah it's just been this sort of connection point for a lot more people to to share about um, uh, their passion for this uh, cause and to also give them a tool to to share it with their friends as well
4: thanks so you're you're his granddaughter I am so we're here
0: to support the committee yeah
4: so is this the first time you've come?
0: Yeah, this is the first time I've come out and seen this, so it's pretty cool. Yeah? Yeah.
4: yeah. Are you surprised that there's people who are prepared to uh, want to mark a uh, Peter Norman Day?
8: We've been following it a little bit and seeing that people have been wanting to come out, so I'm not super surprised that there's lots of people here, but it's a nice turnout. Yeah. Did you know him at all?
0: A little bit. I didn't get to see him a lot because I was still very young, but I knew about him
4: Yeah. It's very nice, isn't it? And you're also his granddaughter? Yeah, I am. (laughs) So you're happy to be here today? Yeah, I'm really happy that we got to come down, so yeah, it's really good. Thanks for talking to me. (laughs) I
8: was Peter Norman's first wife. Oh, right. So um, this was in my time with Peter Norman. Um, So looking at that, um, recalling today, you know, almost 50 years ago, so... um, at that stage, um, Sandy, this young lady over here, that's my th- our second daughter. Um, she wasn't born in that time, but our eldest daughter was born. She was about 21 months old when Peter ran in um, in Mexico in 1968. Um, yeah, we were all very young in those days. Didn't really know a lot about what was happening, you know, with civil rights and all the issues in America in that time. Um, but I've come down today because, well, we all live in the same community. My daughters and children and grandchildren and so we've come down today to yeah just stand with him and it's quite interesting that almost 50 years on that there's um you know um, a whole sort of swell again for yeah standing up for what you believe in and when I go into schools to speak um up in Echuca where we live um I, I um talk about Peter and standing up for your fellow man you know no matter what race or colour or whatever, the creed, but stand up and um, for, for female or man. So this is what it is today. I'll stand with you for human rights. So, um, yeah, a, a quiet, you know, time. No words were spoken on that time. And just those few seconds, isn't it, in history that is, um, yeah, still continuing to be heard today. And uh, so we're telling the next generations and next generations. So... Um, yeah, don't be afraid to stand up. Even though there were consequences, of course. Um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos weren't able to uh, compete again after that time. Um, and neither was Peter. Um, he did. He ran. Um, yeah, he did do running. Um, he was actually uh, went to um, Edinburgh for the Commonwealth Games in 1970, and at that time Sandy was born <laughs> here in Melbourne while he was competing for Australia in. Uh, in 1970, so, um, but after that, yeah, things got a a bit tough, and, uh, yeah, Mm. but, um, yeah, he stood up for what he believed in, and uh, that's what we need to do, stand together,
4: yeah. What was it like at the time? Uh, You know, like you said, it was a couple of seconds, really, uh, Mm. Mm. which actually had a sort of huge effect on, uh, uh, there was a big reaction.
8: yeah was well, flashed around the world of course um, and what happened with the gloves um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos each had a pair of gloves um, just to stand there with their hands up like this but as they were, came out to the dais um, John Carlos had left one pair of gloves in the rooms so Peter said to them well you know Tommy you wear one on the right hand, John Carlos you wear one on the left so that's how that that image came and the badge that Peter's wearing um, that human rights badge um, as they were walking out to the dais, there was a guy just standing in the rooms, and he said, "Oh, excuse me, can I have your badge?" And <laughs> on, so. yeah. But um, our, our upbringing was um, through the Salvation Army, you know, social justice and looking out for your fellow man. All of those years, so um, it didn't surprise me really that Peter would
4: stand with them. And
8: uh, yeah.
4: Can I ask you why you've come today? I'm a member of the committee. Okay, and what brought you to that committee?
0: Um, I've known about Peter Norman. I'm from England, but I've known about Peter Norman for about 30 years because a friend of mine is the son of Tommy Smith. Um, so I've known about this guy, and, and he encouraged me to get involved with more human rights things of, of what he did as, as a white person, standing up and get showing that anybody can do it. Thanks. Hi, sir.
7: Welcome to the, believe it or not, the seventh Peter Norman Day, Human Rights Day. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm the uh, convener of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee. Uh, before we start, on behalf of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee, I'd like to acknowledge that we are standing on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, part of the Kulin Nation, the, group, uh, the Aboriginal groups that own this, the land in which the City of Melbourne is now established, I'd also like to acknowledge they never ceded their sovereign rights to this land and they are seeking to acquire those sovereign rights. I'd also like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. Now, I've got a long list of uh, guest speakers and a long list of apologies. But first of all, I'd like to thank all the members of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee So uh, it'll be their hard work which will see the two aims of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee come to fruition. The first one is holding a commemoration in Melbourne and we've been doing that since 2011. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of that uh, significant event and for the 50th anniversary we hope to have two days set aside, the 9th of October, Peter Norman Day, and the 16th of October the day in which Peter Norman uh, was involved in that courageous uh, action. But that's the job of the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee. But I'd also like to acknowledge the presence of Peter's family here today. And I think it's uh, a great gathering of the clans. Now, I'd I'd like to, uh, first of all, ask uh, Sandy to come up and speak and uh, tell us about why this day is so important to the family. and and to the people of Australia.
11: I'm Sandy Cardrey um, and welcome everyone else on behalf of our family. Um, My sister Janita and I read a poem 11 years ago today um, at Dad's funeral. You may have heard it before and I would like to read it to you. It's called The Dash by Linda Ellis. It goes, "I I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend He referred to the dates of his tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of his birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represented all the time that he spent alive on earth. And now only those who loved him know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash what matters how we live and love and how we spend our DASH. My dad Peter Norman lived his DASH by recognising that we live in a global village where injustices occurring in his country in 1968 were similarly occurring in other countries too. He said to John and Tommy, I will stand with you and he did for the rest of his life because he believed in human rights, that we are all born equal and we should be treated equally. It's time to accept our differences, respect each other, and grow a harmonious global village. I know that Dad would have loved for that to have happened in his lifetime. Thanks for listening, everyone.
7: Thank you. I'd like to call on Melbourne City Councillor Jackie Watts to say a few words.
14: Thank you, Joe, and welcome everybody today. I want to make it clear that I speak on behalf of myself and not my council. I know that the Lord Mayor has been in contact with Joe and outlined the process for formalising the commemoration and we badly need it, don't we? We need every reminder, we need every reminder that we stand for social justice and equality. So what a great guy this was, wasn't it? To, 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 to stand up and, and, and express his solidarity at this point in time. I remember what the world was doing at that point. This, this has been a struggle that was going on, assassinations that occurred. This, this guy showed real courage and what a pity, his own country didn't recognise that courage until so recently. So I add my voice to yours and I certainly will be working in any which way I can to make sure this, this man's efforts and the efforts of those who are interested in improving our society by creating equality.
7: Continue. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I'll just read out the uh, first uh, paragraph or the first sentence of the uh, letter from Robert Doyle, the Lord Mayor. Uh, thank you for your letter requesting that Council opens a dialogue with the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee about memorialising Peter Norman, a Melbourneian and our greatest 200 metre runner. He played an inspirational role. It was in what was a defining moment in Australia's sporting history. So, we have the dialogue, we'll be opening that dialogue in the next week or two. We have a pathway by which to work. It'll take some time, but I am quite confident that uh, we will have something in Melbourne City Square when the uh, redevelopment's finished.
6: Hi, I'm Aaron and you're listening to 3CR.
4: Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and as I said, that's only a snippet of what happened on the Peter um, Norman Memorial Day. During the summer season, we're going to have more of the uh, material with people's speeches, and, and they were all really heartfelt, so it's really worth listening to what people had to say in support of having a per- permanent memorial for human rights commemorating Peter Norman's stance at the 68 Olympics. Uh, and I'm not going to rabbit on because I really want you to hear Chrissy Lee Horsewood who spoke at the Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering. She's a, uh, a First per- Nations person from um, a, a, the minjin Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, that's Minjin as in Queensland, Brisbane.
15: Can you uh, tell me who you are? Absolutely. Uh, my name's Christy Lee Horswood. Uh...
4: Ah, no, that's the wrong bit.
15: Yamagara. Yamagara is a formal welcome in the language of Gamilaray. So when we're addressing more than one people in an organised setting such as this, Yamagara. Uh, I am a Gamilaray woman. Gamilaray territory is... Uh, the bottom half of Queensland and the northern part of New South Wales. I'm 37 years old and also a member of the Stolen Generation. I was taken uh, from my biological mother at birth by uh, what we call a fundamentalist Christian organization, uh, the Salvation Army. So uh, as part of the colonization uh, from 1788 until today, Uh, there has been um, a government agenda throughout the colonial project to assimilate Aboriginal people into a white Christian paradigm. Uh, So warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, our basic, uh, three basic foundation points are resistance, revival and decolonization. So resisting capitalism, anti-imperialism and colonization, resisting Assimilation, uh, revising our languages, which we were uh, forbidden to speak when the British invaded. Uh, we were taken from our homes, uh, forbidden to speak our languages. Children were removed from their parents, and uh, that is, is basically our displacement in a nutshell. Uh, now, with the industrial age that we have entered, we have uh, extractivist neoliberal policies to contend with. Uh, because as indigenous people it is our responsibility to be custodians of our land. We come from it and we will return to it, and we'd like somewhere to return to. (laughs) That'd be nice. So uh, I can tell you a little bit about uh, how war started. It started as a youth movement. At 37 I'm probably, I'm definitely the oldest member of war (laughs) Uh, and it was born out of uh, four of our collective members travelling to Turtle Island, so America and Canada, what is known as America and Canada. Uh, from that, we started to form relations and realize that our struggle mirrored those of our Indigenous brothers and sisters everywhere, that they were facing extermination through uh, extraction, mineral extraction, through assimilance policies, and through poverty as well. And also uh, addiction. Uh, so, you know, in terms of, of where we are now as a, as a collective uh, in Queensland, and, uh, which is Minjin, just so you know, the Aboriginal word for Brisbane is Minjin, uh, Nam for Melbourne, so we have two chapters. And for this panel to discuss whether or not it is possible for us as Indigenous people to work with solidarity groups, I can say yes. Yes. It is possible. Is it difficult? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, Less so when uh, we are thrown into the situation of forming alliances with uh, environmental-based organisations, okay? Because the question here for Aboriginal people is not the same as it is for the black woman and the black man in America. They fight for equality. We fight for sovereignty, Right for self-determination and for autonomy. So, for example, in Gamilaroi, and I spoke briefly about this yesterday, uh, we converged on Gamilaroi to uh, to protest and denounce uh, coal seam gas. Right, so CSG. Okay, and that's CSG wells have sprung up all throughout Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, it's incredibly damaging. There's a real threat that the great artesian basin, which is under Gamilaray, will be poisoned by CSG runoff. Now that artesian basin is responsible for two million people receiving water, and water for their agriculture, for their crops, for their animals, for life. Water is life. So when we converged on Gamilaray country, uh, the various networks that were active were pastoralists, settlers. Okay, so the government has told them that they own the topsoil of their land at one time they had purchased this land stolen land from the government and they feel that they have an entitlement to said land but the government has said no you have the topsoil, the minerals and the gas below belong to the government okay? so uh, that organisation there's a couple, uh, couple there Lock the Gate uh, and Frontline Action Against Coal so when traditional owners and pastoralists come together in a context that we, are, we have no reconciliation, we don't even have consolation, which needs to happen prior to reconciliation. So pastoralists and traditional owners converging uh, to, to denounce the same thing. However, there's so much cognitive dissonance involved uh, from the simpler population of this country that they could not concede that the land was ours. The land is ours. We don't claim ownership. We are it. And this is something I think that the settler population of of Australia could learn. We don't want to take it from you. We We don't want to see you homeless or impoverished like we have been. We would like you to acknowledge that the land and us are the same thing. So if you are fighting, for the preservation of land and future, you're also fighting for us. And, and maybe that's something that the, the settler population doesn't understand necessarily, especially in the context of Gamilari. So it was, it was um, a contentious time uh, because it was our, our traditional lands. Uh, we wanted to, to welcome and dance and perform ceremony and give the conglomeration there our blessing to move forward for their vo- voices to be heard by our ancestors and to be treated safely and to be respected while they're on our country. But we had to fight for the right to welcome pastoralists who illegally occupy our lands to our lands. So you can see the irony there. I don't really have to spell it out. It's pretty obvious. Um, so there, there, is, there is struggle within struggle. I think that's all pretty clear too especially uh, in, in environmental spaces where we are coming forward with a, with a cultural uh, belief that we are traditional custodians of the land and it's our responsibility to care for it. We don't want to own it. We don't own it. That is a capitalist concept. It is not a part of our culture and not part of our identity. So in terms of Solidarity and the productivity that can be garnered. There are difficulties and struggle within struggle, but as all of my brothers and sisters who have spoken over the two days have strived to do, is to prevent you, present you with the, the reality, but also the positive aspects, because that's why we all still persevere. That's why we're all still here, because we do have success. We do have victories. There are respectful collaborations between various networks, And I speak particularly of uh, my opportunity to visit um, the Mapuche on their traditional lands as a member of war uh, and being incredibly envious of the autonomy and the self-determination and terrified by the militarisation. So it was our collective organising and our solidarity and our constant communication and support of one another that made that trip successful and I'm sure other speakers will talk more about that exchange, but it was so valuable because we were um, indigenous and non-indigenous within that delegation. So there were people from popular uh, political movements, from Colombia and from Brazil as well, (coughs) Uh, so familiar and so supportive of the indigenous struggle in their own context that they gave automatic compassion and support to ours. Um, it was also very productive to dispel or debunk the myth of Australia as being perfect
4: Um,
15: because this this is, you talked a lot brother, about what the media can do, what the media can convince you of, the picture it can paint that that we're some sort of egalitarian, utopian society (laughs) and we're not democracy here is not even democracy it's a corporatocracy
4: I'm afraid I have to leave it there and uh, because we've come to the end of the programme. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You should remember that name, Chrissy Lee Horswood. She's quite a remarkable person. We're gonna go out with a bit of Frank Yammer. <laughs>